Join us today for a groundbreaking exploration with chess grandmaster, philosopher, author, and activist Jonathan Rowson, who explores the nature and solutions to our meta crisis, the sum total of challenges that we face at this time on our troubled planet. He offers deep insights into the causes of these challenges and the ways we can contribute and work together despite our differences. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And today we're in conversation with a man whose work I have followed for a number of years and been absolutely fascinated by it. Actually fascinated in several arenas because this is a man who has covered a variety of topics and disciplines. He is Jonathan Rowson, who first rose to fame as the British chess champion, not once, but three times, and also as an international grandmaster. And if you know anything about chess, that is basically the creme de la creme of chess playing. He is the author of four books on chess, three of them quite technical, but one, a more popular book, The Moves That Matter, which draws conclusions about the nature of or the game of chess for the broader issues of life. And it's a wonderful read and some thought-provoking ideas. But then he did something that's, as far as I'm aware, extremely rare in the chess world. After rising to the top and within being rated within, I think, 139th in the world, he did something which is almost unheard of in the professional chess world. He gave it up. He dropped out so to speak, if dropping out to go to Harvard can be called dropping out. <laughs> but he went to Harvard and then to Bristol University for a PhD, in which he got a PhD in wisdom. And this was another way in which he rose to my awareness, because I was an amateur chess player. I'm aware of him in that role, but I've also been researching wisdom. So I have both his chess book and some of his other books on my shelves here. Then after he got his PhD, he worked in as an organizer or director of a couple of organizations, most recently Perspectiva in London, which is an interdisciplinary organization which aims to bring a variety of perspectives to bear on the great issues of our time. And that's one, certainly one of the topics we'll want to get into with him he, in that role. He, or actually in his previous role as a director of a previous organization, he wrote the book Spiritualize, Revitalizing Spirituality to Address 21st Century Challenges. And most recently, just this year, he edited the book Metamodernity, which he says is the first in a series of writings on what he calls a time between world. So this is a man who's covered a wide array of topics and disciplines and is really grappling with some of the great issues of our time. And in that sense, he's what the Jungians would call an epical person, a person who embodies in his own life the great issues uh, that are facing us in our current time. So Jonathan, welcome. It's just a delight for me personally, and in terms of our podcast, to be able to have this dialogue with you. Well, thank yeah, you so much. Let me just add in there just a little bit. One of the reasons that I decided to do this podcast is I wanted to hang out with people that would make me at this stage of my life and career, a better human being and to hang out with Roger and get to know him and work together has been a tremendous, gosh, spiritual and intellectual vitamin shot, if you will. And your work, I've spent the last week just grappling and I've just gotten out of a major surgery. So my wife said, you're just studying all the time. You're reading and taking notes and you're a madman. And there's just, it's, it's barely fair to talk to you after only a week of getting into your work, but there's several major questions and clarities and things begin to emerge. And it's not easy. I had to struggle with your metamodernity article. The type was very small. And I found myself really appreciating a, a text that I needed to struggle with, to work with and, and take the notes and read the footnotes and put it all together. So it was a real workout. 
but again, I, I, I feel that shift in myself of this kind of jhana yoga situation where the quality of your mind, the quality of, of what I watch you say on and different talks and, and podcasts has really, it's just been a great grace and a blessing. So thank you for that, John. Well, thank you both so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Roger, I'm particularly touched and amused, if not slightly bemused in a nice way to be thought of as epochal in that sense. It's a really, a, you know, you're too kind, as we say here, but I do appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing where we go today. Yeah, well, there are so many directions we can go. We'll doubtless move between a variety of different topics. But I'd like to start with a personal question, and that is that there was one thing as I read both your autobiographical writings or, you know, what you've written about yourself, plus also what's written about you that wasn't mentioned. And that is, I know you have your writing and your thinking is deeply contemplatively informed, but you you don't really mention what kind of practices you do. So I'd love to hear about that. Okay. Well, let's see. There's a quick answer and a longer answer. So the, the quick answer is that I learned TM or Transcendental Meditation when I was about, uh, let's see, 21 or so. And have practiced that quite regularly for some time, including occasionally some of the more advanced aspects of that. I've also been, you know, for several years, I did yoga for quite a long time, although alas, that has lapsed recently. Um, but I think the deeper answer, and this is the question where what we really mean by practice, right? Because certainly there are deep contemplative traditions in all major religions and some that are post-religious or a-religious. But there's also the question of, you know, what was chess, if not some kind of practice, right? I was mm-hmm. playing for, for decades. You arrive like a ritual. You have rules and methods. It requires a great deal of discipline, concentration. So that was some kind of practice for many, many years. And then arguably writing is a practice, which I've, I hope, become better at over time. It's a long road and writing is still very exacting on, on a good day. And then, of course, parenting. It's also, a, I'm a, I have a 12-year-old and six-year-old son, and they're exacting, you know, they, they, to be the, my best self around them at all times is beyond me, but I do try. So together, so there was an original kind of spiritual opening, you could say, in the form of TM and learning also a little bit about the Vedantic philosophy behind TM. Many years of, you know, I have been to mindfulness retreats and tried some Vipassana and so forth, but it never really quite either grab me or I wasn't ready for it or however you describe that and then I suppose I'm I'm culturally Christian and still always flirting with going back to Christianity never quite never quite happening but I'm increasingly at ease with the language of God and even Christ or Holy Spirit or you know I'm I'm no longer scared of that or allergic to that but I wouldn't quite call myself Christian yet either and then because of intellectually, Buddhism is so fascinating. I'm also a kind of amateur Buddhologist of some kind. So it's a, a mixed bag, you could say, but there are many different kinds of practices along the way. Yeah, and and again, this is one of the, you're incorporating one of the themes of our times, that this is the first time in human history we've had multiple traditions available to us, and we've been able to practice them without risking being ending up on a funeral pyre. And you're describing an evolution of both deep inner work or contemplative practice through your TM, but then taking your daily life as your practice. And if I were to, you know, put a label, which I'm reluctant to, but it seems like you're very much a karma yogi doing your, using your work in the world and your parenting as your practice. Well, within those adjectives, forms of yoga, John already mentioned, there's a certain amount of yana yoga, there's a certain amount of intellectual effort. There is quite a lot of karma yoga. And I always find that term a little euphemistic because, you know, I've been on yoga retreats where people say, you're lucky, go and do some karma yoga. And what they mean is go and clean the bathroom, you know, or something like that. (laughs) So so, um, I always hear when I hear karma yoga, my mind's always a little bit awry. But yes, Roger, you're basically right. At this stage of my life, it's a particular phase, right? And you're, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, a little older than me. And I'm in, I'm very much in the world at the moment. John also mentioned the small type in one of her books. You know, I recently became a publisher and that was exacting in its own way, a lot to learn and, you know, others helping me, but we made a lot of mistakes, including in that particular book, just somehow not getting it right with the type size. And I only say that because it's an example of the thing I've been caught up in for the last few years, trying to create an organization, 
managing people, simultaneously writing, looking after kids, moving house, looking after parents. It's a phase of life where taking a month off to go through a silent retreat, while not impossible, is extremely difficult. So I have to make do with what's there in front of me in my life. I really respect and acknowledge the way you've done that, the way you've brought all these elements together. And it seems, as I read, you you are you know, you're self-revealing in your writing about some of the challenges and so forth. And it feels like, as you mentioned quite explicitly in some of your writings, you're trying to, you've been a, an intellectual and a map, intellectual map maker. And now you're trying to go beyond that to bring, as you, you say, your whole being to your work and your writing. And I, I get that sense of, as someone who also is a compulsive intellectual. Right. Like, uh, I think you described in uh, in uh, your book, Metamodernity, that you'd given up, trying to give up map making, but you're going to have one last cigarette and here is another map you, yes, you yes. want to lay out. <laughs> That's right. It was a kind of sincerely ironic joke, you could say, because I think we are map makers. There's a deep human imperative to sort of make sense of the world conceptually that often arises in some kind of cartological form. I think I joked that I, I had my last cigarette as a cartilogical hedonist. And by <laughs> cartilogical hedonist, I mean someone who derives pleasure from making maps or studying maps. And I suppose it's just that you get to a point there where you begin to see conceptual structures and you see them very much in the way you see a hammer or a saw. And you think, God, that could be really useful for something. But I, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't want the hammer when I'm trying to be light and I don't want the saw when I'm trying not to hurt anyone. You know, so there's there's a question of what tools are for and the words and the concepts and the ratiocination of intellectual work is very powerful, very seductive. I love it. I'm even quite good at it, but it it's not the whole world and it's only one way of engaging with it. Before we get too far down the road, I wanted to, to comment on what you said a bit ago, how you're culturally Christian and how you're coming more at peace with with those building blocks, I suppose, that, that Christianity gave us. And the way you described it, I found was very close to my own experience. And I found that quite that quite powerful. Anyway, I know there's a whole lot to be said there, and we don't have to go down that road, but that's a whole other area that I'm interested in hearing how it came through you. I'm happy to respond to that. There's a whole, there is a whole conversation there. It could take us a long time. But the, the main thing to convey to listeners, I suppose, is insofar as metamodernism makes any sense, and that's another question, but one of the, one of the quick ways into it, and there are many, but one of them is, it's a, a sort of a view of the world that is sort of deeply ethically committed, but it's also beyond allergies and infatuations. And by that, I mean, it's no longer throwing things out just because of how they sound or because of certain prejudices or certain reputations of things. And I think when it comes to Christianity, you know, it's so much baggage on the one hand, right? It, it's the Inquisition. It's in, in some contexts, it's a, priests abusing their power in various ways. It's social control at some level. It arises in the abortion debate in the U.S. It's, you know, it's full of very loaded terrain. And so a lot of people instinctively say, that's not for me. And that's part of the old world. And, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious in that way. And there's a validity to that. I don't knock it. It's just that there's a difference between discernment and critical discernment and engaging in a, in a way that recognizes strengths and weaknesses and a kind of wholesale throwing out of something because that you don't like how it initially feels. And with Christianity, there is a kind of spiritual and moral and even historical demand to attend to it in a certain way that I think we're poorer for not doing properly, many of us. So when I've taken time to actually speak with Christians and understand like, what actually does it really feel like? You know, this idea of Jesus, son of God, and died on the cross for our sins. And that, what is that all about? You know, can you tell me about it? But when you take time to really let it sink in, it's rewarding. You know, it's like it does shape and change you. And you're, a lot of our, our sort of preconceptions about Christianity are not helpful and not adequate. So I'm not saying return to old-time religion at all, but rather don't be allergic to it. Try to allow yourself to engage it in a way that doesn't sort of lead you to just react to it without thinking. Thank you. So by going deeper into and in a more informed and reflective stance, and, and I was struck also the way you talked about the map making and the being able now to see concepts, words, ideas as tools. So I'm intrigued in as much as that sounds very much like a specific developmental stage in the work of Suzanne Cook-Greuter, who we had on the podcast just a few days ago. 
she would describe that as the movement to the construct aware, where we are able for the first time, instead of being embedding in or indwelling within our concepts and our language, to be able to develop sufficient awareness so as to be able to step back and look at the concepts rather than look through them. It seems right. like you give a beautiful description of that. I mean, it is how I feel, I suppose. And there's one very pertinent example, just to, so that that point becomes a little more real for people. The political spectrum of left and right, we hear it in the news all the time. It's used casually, reflexively, as if people knew what it meant. But it's increasingly a kind of misinformation. But you can only really feel that when you start to sort of see the language of left and right and center. And that applies a bit more broadly to liberal and conservative and so forth. But staying with the political spectrum, it applies to that because a little bit of incredulity towards what these terms ever meant and what they mean now leads you to think, well, when they're used, are they really helpful anymore? Are they our friends? Are they actually giving rise to edifying thought and action? Or are they sort of shortcuts that are long past their sell-by date? Because in this case, with left and right, you know, they arose out of the French Revolution. They, they, they are very old. They have a long lineage. And they're, they're mostly about binaries like individual and collective and state and market and private and public and tradition and innovation. And most issues of the day are now informed by some kind of ecological constraint or context and some kind of technological development or context, not to mention the role of transnational finance. And so this old political spectrum just isn't helping us anymore, right? And so when you become construct aware of that and stop using left and right as if you knew what the terms mean and allow them to become strange to you again, there's a possibility for new forms of language that have more vitality, more relevance, more power, and therefore, this becoming aware of words as kinds of tools has real effects in the world. They're active ingredients. They're not just descriptions of what's happening. They are what's happening. Yeah, and that feels so important because, as you're pointing to, so many of the terms that are used, and particularly ones which are at the center of divisive debates, kind of shorthand symbols for a whole worldview, a value stance, a set of presuppositions and so forth. And so it feels like it can be really valuable to do, as you're suggesting, that is step back and forget the exact words you used, but I love them, look at them afresh, I think, look at them as you know new and as strange. But then also to look at what are the many dimensions that are actually encapsulated within them, that, that any left and right mean actually a shorthand from multiple dimensions of values and priorities and assumptions, etc. So this seems like something very important. And I'm reminded of Confucius, who was asked if he were made the advisor to the state, what would the first thing he would do? And he said, I would first rectify names. <laughs> by which he meant he would first give some core understanding, bring some discernment to the way terms are used. Right. That's fascinating because, of course, you know, Confucian China has was its own world with its own historical context. But in terms of the principle of the words that are being used to make sense of the social reality, being themselves the object of inquiry and not merely the subject of experience is a critical form of cultural progress. Just to say an example of that was, I mean, you know, we don't want to get too lost in the particular issues, but one example was when the UK was undergoing the Brexit sort of quagmire after the vote had happened and it wasn't clear how the vote would be delivered upon and what the what the exact relationship with the EU would be. And this, this lasted, it was like a two-year psychodrama in our country. And very often there was this question of what was and wasn't democratic. Like it would be a betrayal of democracy not to implement the result. It would be a betrayal of democracy not you know, to have a referendum. But almost never in the public domain did anyone go one degree removed and say, well, when we say democracy, what actually, what do we mean? Like, what are we talking about here? It was considered a kind of academic armchair issue, but it was right at the heart of what was defining the culture at the time. And the same thing would apply more generally with rectifying names. So, for example, technology is often used and technology is viewed broadly positively, I would say, although certainly there's technophobia out there. But actually, very often when we say technology, we mean capitalism. Very often, tacitly, what we mean is patterns of innovation driven by venture capital and finance that are world shaping. And that doesn't make them bad, but it just means that we should be careful what we're talking about because we're creating the world all the time with these terms that are mostly unexamined. 
And so it matters. I, I think Confucius was onto something there. Yeah. yeah. And I'm struck that there's a, a recurrent underlying theme. The things that you're suggesting may be really important for us to do. Uh, look more deeply and disentangle ourselves from these concepts, look at them. And you just spoke of effectively making our words and concepts the objects for investigation rather than filters we look through. And I'm struck that, again, how that relates to developmental psychology. And I know you actually at Harvard spent a significant amount of time studying developmental psychology, and you almost encapsulated the Robert Keegan, the core move that Robert Keegan identifies as central to development, that is the capacity for making what was part of our subjectivity into an object that we can look at. Yes, certainly Robert Keegan or Bob Keegan had a big influence on me. You know, I was 25 or maybe 26 when I took his course there and subsequently met him a couple of times. Yeah, it's really powerful work. And the thing about, I mean, before we get too much into development, it's important to understand again what we're talking about, because some people hear development and they think stage theory. They think steps on a ladder in which we get progressively wiser or, more, or smarter or whatever. But actually development, well, I believe the etymology is something to do with it's less about accruing things and more about layers coming off oneself. I forget the exact meaning. It's worth checking after this. But what I do do want to share is of all the things that Keegan wrote, and he wrote quite a bit, his first chapter in his first major book, The Evolving Self, was called The Unrecognized Genius of Jean Piaget. And it's a really brilliant philosophical underpinning to the whole idea of human development because it gives a view of this as something organismic that isn't just a human mental issue but applies to all forms of life. And it's something to do with the process of what Piaget calls assimilation and accommodation, but can apply to sort of any organism that is in relationship to an environment and take some of that environment in, but then has to define itself in relationship to it in some way. And so when you see this, the, the term Keegan uses is panorganic. It's across all forms of life. I say that now in the context of development, because if you're not careful, development can be a very crude map that's a kind of hierarchical representation of different people where some are up and some are down and some are better and some are worse. Now, most people who understand development know that's not the case, but the risk is when it turns into a tool used in corporations and training, the temptation of the ego is to say, where am I on this map and how do I get higher up? But when you look at it philosophically, development is something about the deep structure of life in which organisms mature over time and relate to their environment and adapt to it in certain ways. And that richer conception of development is one which, you know, is kind of permeates everything and it, it's worth attending to, but it has to be done with care. Otherwise you end up with something altogether more crude and simplistic that can be misused. But I think it has to be addressed. And one of the things you said in some of your writings, I read, I think the introduction to metamodernity, you said there's the physics and then there's the politics of any given situation, like the uh, the crisis and the pandemic, uh, warming, global warming. Obviously, we can do the physics, at least it's turning out that we can do the physics pretty well, but the real challenge comes in the politics. And how do you get these different seeming levels of reality to cohere in some form that we can work together as a united family, human family, to address these problems? And to me, therein seems to be the real, the real challenge. I mean, at least the one I'm most concerned about, because maybe I can do a little bit on that end. But, but what do you say about that, Jonathan, as it as pertains to developmental uh, psychology and addressing the, the issues of, of our time? Well, so, the, so I'm glad you picked up on that, John. The line in question I think you're referring to came originally from Alistair McIntosh, who's a sort of Scottish philosopher, even mystic. And he wrote a wonderful book on climate change. And, it, and it's in the context of climate change that he wrote this, that the challenge is getting from the physics, you know, the, the gap between the physics and the politics is huge. By that he means, if you say we have to reduce carbon emissions by a certain amount, and we have to change the use of land in this way, and we have to change human behavior in a certain way, and these are the budgets and the rich countries have to do a bit more and you can map it all out as people try to do. And they just try to do that in Glasgow and they got some sort of tentative agreement, although much of the agreement was to agree to meet later and talk it further, which has happened now 25, 26 times. I say that because the heart of this, you know, the question of power doesn't go away. And, and I, would, I would not want to reduce everything to a developmental model. 
there's two ways of answering this. One is the reason the climate conundrum is so very vexed and intractable and difficult to feel hopeful about for those who look at it clearly is because it's riddled with politics. And the politics are defined by political institutions, structures and expectations that are mostly based on meeting immediate human needs and desires rather than the greater good of the collective in the medium to long term. And that's not likely to change overnight. That's something that is a long educational process. It might be driven by crisis so that people do kind of wake up and are willing to change in various ways. But the challenge is that for any given climate question, there are some win-wins. There are definitely win-wins out there, but you cannot get all the way there with win-win stories. There are also some win-lose scenarios. If you're working in a fossil fuel company, if you're in a country that's rich in coal, you know, it's not clear that you're going to get the outcome you want from any given negotiation or agreement. So I think one, the first thing I'd say about the physics and politics issue is it's post-tragic, let's say. It's in the sense that to really face up to the climate conundrum is to get beyond facile solutions. It's to get beyond the idea that let's get together, guys, we can sort this out. That's no longer where I'm at with this. I think the progressive community especially makes heroic assumptions, really heroic assumptions, about the capacity of human beings to find their better natures and cooperate at scale. Now, of course, you should give human beings every possible chance to be their best selves. And we do that culturally, educationally, interpersonally. I'm all for it, right? But we're also looking at a ticking clock in a world that's growing increasingly authoritarian. We're in a world where many of the oil and gas reserves are in countries like Russia, to some extent Brazil, to some extent China, some extent Turkey, places where democracy is not flourishing. So when we come to the physics and politics question, we're not speaking about who wins the election. We're speaking about whether there are free and fair elections at all. So that's a lot, and it's a big, big sort of contextual frame. If you really want me to think about that developmentally, I would answer by saying it might be a mistake to do so because, you know, there are models of moral development as well as models of cognitive development and various other kinds. But it's a mistake to think that becoming more developmentally advanced is concurrent with virtue development or becoming a better person. I can give one example from the UK and you probably, and I could give a parallel in the US that I think might apply. So in the UK, the figure I would consider is someone called Dominic Cummings, who was the prime minister's chief advisor for a long time. He was also the mastermind and main architect of the Brexit campaign that won. And he was also instrumental in forcing through Brexit, even in, in light of political resistance. Now, he is a hyper-sophisticated intellectual person, right? Very rationalistic, though. He's very much, you know, if you did a Michael Commons assessment on him, I would imagine he'd be very, very advanced. But is he empathetic? Not especially. Does he look like he's a man of great virtue? Not necessarily. The parallel in the US might be Steve Bannon. He's perhaps the closest, although he's a little more on the fascistic side. But still, there's no doubt there's a developmental advance there. A lot of what he does is getting into the minds of the other side and realizing their limitations and then using that against them in certain ways. So I guess I'm just counseling that while I'm all for development in principle and understanding it well and people growing and developing, development is not the answer to every question. Sometimes you can be high development but not necessarily any higher in virtue or care for the common good. And we have to be a bit careful about what kind of development we're talking about at any given moment. Well, adding virtue to that whole idea of development is, I think, is essential. And you certainly described it well with those two examples. Thank you. Yeah, and you're pointing also to the fact that well, your, your key point sounds like is, you know, development is not necessarily the best lens to look at our contemporary global and social issues through. And if we were to do so, we would also want a richer understanding of what development means, because certainly just doesn't, doesn't just mean cognitive development. It means the flourishing of virtues and empathy and a variety of other capacities as well. And also there's another issue that, you know, development is wonderful. I mean, yes, it would be great if, you know, we could all come up a notch or two on on ethics and morality and cognitive, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes a long time. It's not clear that that's the most strategic approach. It does seem, I am of a, you know, very much of the idea that from Aldous Huxley's utopian novel, Ireland, where the visitor asks the islanders, well, where do you start to create this, this utopia? And the, the response is we start everywhere at once. Yes, yeah. And it feels like, 
okay, what's gonna, we're going to need everything we possibly can. Yes, development and maps and better understanding play their role. But there's also a question for each of us. In some ways, it's a sacred question of our time. What's the most strategic contribution I can make? And I'd love to ask you how you see that for yourself, Jonathan, because you're someone who is not only doing your own writing and reflection and speaking about these great issues of our time, the so-called metacrisis, as you name them, but also directing an organization with a considerable outreach. So what do you see as the your most strategic contribution? I don't know is the quick answer, but the, let me see if I can conjure something more interesting. There are moments where you feel you touch people, right? There are moments where you, I mean, what, what I would love is to create a world where everyone can do the work that they're best at, you know, and that they love the most. Many of us would hope for that. When you feel you're doing something that only you could do, it's a wonderful feeling. I don't always get that. I get maybe that about 20 to 30% of the time that I'm working. And that's partly because I've taken on this responsibility to try and build an organization that needs funding and that isn't always easy. And then you need to keep on justifying what you're trying to do and why, and that isn't always easy. And you're managing people and that isn't always easy. And trying to keep keep in sight, what are you really trying to do? Like, and what what would make a difference? What is the leverage? What is the, what can, what can you do that would make any meaningful difference? Now, I had an idea quite recently that's worth sharing in this context. It's only one of several, you know, writing Tasting the Pickle, for example, the essay that is at the beginning of the book on metamodernity and which is also available online freely. Writing that was a, was a kind of liberation because it's like, okay, this is roughly how I see the world at the moment. It will look different in 10 years, but for now, this is the best I can do to say, here's how I see the challenge of the world and my relationship to it. But if there's one thing to focus in on and that, whole long paper it's something to do with the fact that i believe many of the world's problems are actually problems of grammar and i'll explain what i mean by that we constantly invoke the injunction that we have to do x y or z we have to lower emissions by this so much we have to revitalize democracy we have to be more civil in our public conversations we have to defend democracy and so forth the problem there is not the postmodern we problem. The problem is not just that you're speaking on behalf of maybe sort of white patriarchal elite constituency and actually not speaking for the greater, more inclusive we. It's The problem is not so much that it's the royal we and you're kind of assuming everyone is on the same page as you. I see the problem as deeper than that. And it comes back to what you said, Roger, a minute ago about development. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm coming to the view that this kind of coincidence of opposites or perennial conflict or fundamentally different ways of seeing the world and feeling the world, clashes of values, incommensurate values maybe, different traditions, different metaphors, that this is somehow perennial, that actually we're in culture to think that somehow there is a view of heaven or utopia where there is perfect harmony and people coordinate perfectly and everyone gets what they want and everyone is happy. In my heart of hearts, I now think, no, I believe some degree of conflict and opposition and resistance is no bad thing. And moreover, it's part of what it is for the world to be the world, it would even be part of what it is for heaven to be heaven. And so why do I say that in the context of grammar? It's because when we say we, that we is, has many, many layers. The we of humanity includes your opponents, your adversaries, including those who do not have the greater good at heart. Those who are either sociopathic or psychopathic or narcissistic or just power hungry. They are not going anywhere, right? This is the, prop, this is the, this is the thing to, to really feel into that's quite difficult and painful to feel into, but it, it's something that I feel I maybe have a role to play in, in sharing. And it's within Perspectiva's work, you may know we have this sort of emerge website and community, and that's more like the social dimension of our work. And I've been trying to make this a major theme within that emerge community, because I feel it's a deep enough issue, but also capacious enough for people to find their way into it. But thus far, it's been a partial success because a lot of people hear what I'm saying and they think what I'm trying to convey is we need a larger we, a more inclusive we, a bigger we. And let's work together for that. But I think that's still the kind of progressive 
imperialism that assumes that everyone is on the same page. I believe the deeper truth, it's not Manichaean. It's not saying that the devil is always there along up in heaven, but it's a little bit informed by that. It is a little bit that the world that we're in is inherently full of resistance to whatever you're trying to achieve. And it will always be thus. Now, what follows from that is when we say we, and we have to through natural language, but really that one word needs to be several. And I don't think I'm going to change the English language overnight, nor do I think necessarily being too finickety with your words is wise or helpful. But I do feel there's something fundamental I have to offer in getting people to face up to the kind of fallen nature of the world so that when we find our political hope and when we find out what we think we should be doing, that it's with that bigger picture in mind of those who do not share our values, those who may not have the greater good at heart, but will always be a feature of the world. And it's a difficult reckoning. But once you get there, I think whatever you do decide to do with your work, with your life, will be more effective because it's more real. So, yes, I, the word that came up, I was about to say beautiful, but that, that doesn't feel adequate to the depths of what you're opening to and inviting us into, which is a worldview, which is, which is not, not, not Manichaean, but it's certainly not utopian, and it's more, it feels more realistic. And it feels realistic in the sense of, for example, some of the Eastern traditions with their idea of Maya, that this is a world of illusion and inherent unsatisfactoriness, or as the Buddha's first noble truth, which is often translated as this, you know, life is suffering, which is a very poor translation, much better is there is unsatisfactoriness in an unenlightened life. There is unsatisfactoriness in our collective life. It's part of life, and we need to acknowledge that. And I think one of the things that contemplative practice does is, as we see more and more deeply into our own psyches, we recognize that we are in, that the term, you mentioned Buddhism before, so the Buddhists would call our fundamental state deluded. And that doesn't seem an exaggeration. It really doesn't. There's a term that I found very useful from early Buddhism with its description of the Buddha's initial realization of the nature of the world. There's a particular term which described three features of his state of mind. The first was shock at realizing the extent to which we are living deluded lives. The second is a kind of pain at realizing the extent to which we have colluded with that. And a third is what's called spiritual urgency, an urgent sense of, wow, we've got to wake up. And from that, or I've got to get out of this as quickly as possible. And then in later Buddhism, that's taken to the fourth recognition of, I have to wake up in order that I can be an optimal instrument for the welfare and awakening of all. So there was a lot in that, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the Pali term, but it, it conveys a lot. It's useful to hear because you may know that Daniel Schmachtenberg, I don't know if he's been on your show yet, but he has this line about in a world where technology can make anyone a god, we all have to become bodhisattvas. There's a sort of sense in which the commensurate response is to be sufficiently wise to be able to attend to these godlike technologies. But the other thing is that the delusion you mentioned, and of course, they have the three poisons in Buddhism of hatred and greed as well. I guess I'm getting at the fact that these things... I mean, when I say perennial is not quite the right word, because that suggests they've sort of always been there. It's also that I'm not sure they will go away. And even, I believe, among advanced practitioners, you know, there's still trace elements of them. They're sort of baked into the condition. I find that very, very helpful to really face up to, because what I find is within the progressive communities in which I'm often a part, there is this underlying delusion that really everyone's just a kind of waiting to be educated into their own worldview, as if somehow the way they see the world is somehow fundamentally the right way, and the others just are just not getting it yet. But I don't think that's how it is somehow. Once you feel that, that these fundamentally different perspectives on the world, different value orientations are there, it's not to say there's no commonality. You know, we all feel pain, we all breathe, we all eat, and so forth. And even the worst of us are not beyond redemption. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when we come to think of a big collective action problem of our time, of which climate change is, you know, climate collapse, as I should say, is preeminent. Just very important that when we evoke the we of what we have to do and the crisis that we are in, that that full we is felt, including those who might see the climate crisis as an opportunity to make money, for example, or an opportunity to 
you know, short sell something or, you know, whatever it is. And I don't do that to dwell on the darkness, but I sort of feel we have to transcend and include that perspective to really have any hope. Yeah. As we keep talking as if everyone's going to get it together, I feel it's kind of hopeless. Yeah, it is. And what seems to me anyway, and from a world's contemplative perspectives, I think that the idea that we would all come to some common agreement seems rather painfully naive. And yet that must not obscure our search for the highest common denominator and looking for what we can share and we can agree on and some that may be mutually beneficial. Part of the challenge is looking for what can inspire people from different motivational sets and at different developmental stages. And uh, I think that is one of the real challenges of our time. Or are we looking for a strategic tipping point where at least we can get enough people that care about something to take action so that we can begin to head in a way that for our collective redemption or salvation? Well, I think at minimum, John, in the pickle paper, I use a turn of phrase where I ask, are we really condemned to be the idiots who blame the bastards for the world falling apart? And I think that's a useful question. And I don't think we are. I think there is hope beyond that. The risk is that we get into this finger pointing, the government's letting us down. Um, we don't seem to know what to do about it. So you're right that the imperative to mobilize civil society in some form of meaningful collective action that contends with particularly the ecological crisis, but increasingly the epistemic crisis too, and that's a, you know, a lateral conversation. I totally agree with it. I don't, I'm not without hope there. You know, I think there's plenty to motivate people to protect their only habitat in the far reaches of space, right? I think you can get to a point where it's like, okay, we have lots of things that we disagree about, but we all inhabit this small planet, as one of your ex-residents said. We all breathe the same air, and we all cherish our children's future, and we're all mortal. And that is there. That is absolutely right, as JFK put it. But at the same time, and this is why it's difficult, and why I think we need to really pay attention to this, the clock is ticking, right? So you already said yourself, Roger, some of these developmental goals, and also some of the ethical goals, are intergenerational. They can sometimes take a whole lifespan. We don't know really of any quick fixes that turn everyone into the perfect bodhisattva at a scale of 8 billion or so. There is no such thing. And therefore, we're left with humanity as we find it, with all the polarization, all the competing priorities, all the incommensurate values. Now, how do you keep hope in that context of some kind of concerted action that protects our only habitat from irreparable, further irreparable harm, I should say? And I haven't given up on that. And the, the problem I face in my life at the moment is I don't want to be the party pooper. You know, I don't want to be the guy who's always apparently sowing division or bringing the enemy into the room. But I do find that somehow I've got reached the point in my life and career where I feel if they're not there, if that perspective isn't in the room, by that I mean the one that doesn't agree with you, the one that doesn't want what you want. And I think I've got that from chess. I think that's, that's the, one of the legacies of being a chess player for years very aware of the opponent just they exist they have a right to exist i don't even know if they don't think that i'm the one who's deluded and greedy and hateful you can see this all the time now but somehow the conversations we need to have are about how do we work together in a context not where we will agree or necessarily even like each other but where we accept that those those differences are part of the fabric of, rea of social reality. Because my fear is that we don't at the moment. My fear is that we somehow think we can find a story that everyone will agree with in which everyone finds their place. I feel making friends with a kind of benign conflict is a necessary feature of social progress. But I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't quite know what I mean by it yet. But when you asked me earlier about leverage or, or like the key point, I honestly feel this is where we have to sort of begin understanding how to talk about this. Because just to give one example, I'm in contact with a lot of people who might be called climate romantics who want to sort of a deep nature, deep ecology approach to the climate crisis. Maybe they're post-growth, for example, and they want a very different relationship to industrialization and they want to go back to simpler living in smaller communities. They want to learn from indigenous peoples. And, you know, good luck to them. I'm all, I'm all for it. There's a lot of wisdom there and it's wise. But there are also the techno-utopians who think that we should double down on economic growth, trust in technology and innovation to solve the problem. 
and they sound pretty smart. Maybe they're deluded. Maybe they may well be deluded, but you know, tell them that and see how they respond because they'll have their response. I'm very confused because I'm becoming aware of these, this multiplicity of perspective. I'm still fundamentally hopeful and optimistic, but I feel we have to fully grapple with the irreducible plurality of the world. Um, and when we do, there's a sort of higher order unity, but it, it takes a while to get there and it, it takes a lot of oxygen to get there. So. Yeah. I love what you say, a uh, uh, higher order unity and the irrevocable multiplicity of the world. And also I'm struck by your saying you're confused and somehow that feels very healthy because <laughs> realistically, <laughs> there's no way any of us can grasp the enormous complexity of the issues we face and which you call the meta crisis and, and i'd love to have you explicate that but it feels like th there's a certain cultural value given to having an aura of confidence and certainty and yeah there's there's value in that but or there can be value in that but i'm also the more i look the more i'm impressed by the fundamental nature of our relationship to reality is bottomless, boundless mystery. The, yeah. the deeper we look, the more we recognize how little we know and how little we can know. And somehow it feels really important to come to peace and acceptance of mystery. And so when I hear confusion, that sounds good to me. Well, I'm glad. And it's, it's interesting trying to run a nonprofit while being very confused because <laughs> right. you know, very often you, you, your team want to know what you think you should do. And, and you're like, well, here's the argument for this side. Here's the argument for the other side. And go figure it out. <laughs> and likewise with funders, they want to hear your theory of change. And, you know, it's not like I haven't thought about it. It's not as though I couldn't tell a story about how it, what we're doing makes perfect sense. And I do, I have to. But there's another part of me that thinks... We're at a phase of time historically, literally between worlds, and we can become to what that means, where actually the intellectual function is increasingly humiliated. The intellect is very powerful. It can do a great deal of work. But this world of the pandemic and the climate crisis and the new metaverse, if that becomes a real thing, and shifting sands of different kinds of currency and boundaries between nation states being in question because of so much happening digitally... We're in this world where our conceptual categories and our, our sort of sense of what's real is in deep flux, such that when the intellect tries to make sense of it, there's a certain incredulity towards it. You know, it's like, really, you think you can make sense of this? And we do but try, and it's not wrong to try. But those who have a crisp answer of what exactly we should do with a 10-point plan for the whole world, part of me is impressed and wishes I was them. And part of me smiles and wishes them good luck. <laughs> right. Yes, my late wife, the psychologist Francis Vaughan, used to say, trust those who have questions, be wary of those who have answers. <laughs> and there's wisdom there. And I, I'm also struck as you talk about confusion. You know, the Carlos Castaneda books, which were such so widely read in the 80s and 90s, and well, very questionable in some ways, but also had wisdom in them. And one of the things that struck me there was the wise person there was the person of knowledge. And there were four traps laid out for a person of knowledge. The first was fear. The second was power, because as you move on to the path and begin to get some capacities, you know, there's the trap of power. I'll jump to the final one, which was old age, the temptation, you know, to just be satisfied with what you've done and kind of relax and ride on your coattails. And but the third was the most interesting. The third trap of a person of knowledge was clarity. Hmm. And that was a trap because when things felt really clear, that meant you had a map of the way things were. And that was what you had to be willing to give up next. And in the Eastern temples, the two lions that guard the gates are sometimes said represent confusion and paradox. And the person who would have wisdom must be willing to pass through both. So the guardians I, of truth, right? I've heard them called the guardians of truth. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So somehow this confusion you describe seems very healthy. Well, yeah. It doesn't always feel healthy because, of <laughs> no. course, we're in a world, like you said, that values clarity. 
It does value confusion increasingly too. It values the candid sharing of confusion. I'm reminded of a simple anecdote of when I was at university. I did one year of economics, part of a degree that had economics, politics, and philosophy in it. And I was struggling initially. In the first class, I went away and did the essay and I came back and I didn't do very well. And the teacher said, what happened? I said, I'm just very confused by the whole thing. He said, that's no good. I'm fine with confusion, but you've got to tell me what exactly you're confused about. You come back when you tell me this part I don't understand. Then I'll know that you really understand what's going on. Because his point was that general confusion can be a kind of failure to engage. But when you're actually, can you, you can pinpoint the nature of your confusion with a degree of precision, that is in itself a kind of understanding. And mm, that's the kind of gosh. higher order. That's where you, know, you find the question within the answer, if you like. I hope that's the kind of confusion I'm currently in. It's not, nothing makes sense. It's a creative confusion, perhaps. Well, yeah, like on the one hand, I, if you take an issue I mentioned earlier, part of me really does feel that our best hope for humanity is some kind of shift in the underlying cultural logic, a move beyond economic growth, a return to a time-rich relationship life with less material consumption. Another part of me feels that's woefully naive, given the current democratic mandates are going to be electing people that will promise economic growth indefinitely. I'm like, well, what's going to happen then? I don't know. And I can't, with a clear conscience, advocate one or the other, because I can see practical problems with one and ecological problems with the other. And so I'm often in that kind of dissonant conundrum kind of space, which is a kind of confusion. Join us for part two of our discussion with Jonathan Rousen, in which we explore the emerging cultural phase of metamodernity and the ways it can help us to respond to the great issues of our time. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up, as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.